it's a possibility. So we'll see if that works. I'm not sure it'll work, but um, maybe it will. Okay, so let's look at some of the stuff. If you go to the second page, there's a little quiz for you at the very start. So there are two versions of a couplet. Um, a thing that we'll talk a lot about this term is what's called the heroic couplet, which most, but not all, 18th century poetry is written in. Um, the 18th century is the age of the heroic couplet, um, partly because that's the mode the French were writing in and the English poets who were learning from the French um, were also imitating that mode. Um, couplets are the in a sense, the most obvious way that you can write poetry, that is you write a line and then you write a line that rhymes with it. Um, they're also, they tend to feel to people rightly that they're the most boring way to write poetry. Um, for the 18th century poets, um, heroic couplets were, had a natural tropism towards boringness. It's very hard to make heroic couplets interesting, which is one reason that the romantics um, really disliked the 18th century poets. Um, but the very fact that it's hard to make couplets interesting meant that the poets had to work really, really, really hard in every couplet and in every line to make them interesting. Um, and that's something that we'll look at. It's a very restricted form. Um, but the very restriction of the form means that the writers of the couplet have to be extremely inventive in how they use the form. So the general interplay in poetry is between um, restriction and resourcefulness, between being constrained um, and um, finding some freedom within those very constraints. And one really interesting thing about 18th century poetry is that you can learn a whole lot about that central poetic fact in very concentrated measure um, if you study the heroic couplet. Um, there's a great um, historian of poetry, um, quite a colorful person at the end of the 19th century named George Sainsbury, um, who um, writes about um, the heroic couplet. Um, I won't be able to quote it exactly, but it's something like this, that um, all people who learn to write the heroic couplet well um, had to dye their writerly hand. That is, um, it's, a, it's a, actually an image from Shakespeare. Um, that is, the dyer's hand takes the color of the dye um, that, um, that the dyer is working in. Um, had to so dye their hand um, that um, the fact remains, that it is a fact that they couldn't write in any other form the fact, and then he says parenthetically, with the single exception of the heroic and godlike craftsmanship of Dryden, then he closes his parentheses, is the fact. Um, so Dryden for Sainsbury is the only um, poet who wrote in couplets who could also write well in other forms. And Sainsbury is not shy about calling him the godlike Dryden. Um, the rule prove that's right, it's the rule proving and godlike exception of Dryden. Um, the fact remains the fact. Um, so here are two, and Pope only wrote well in heroic couplets, but he wrote amazingly well in heroic couplets. So here are two versions of a famous couplet of Pope. Some of you may know it. Um, 
But if you don't, um, um, the if you do, just don't say anything. If you don't, um, this is just a little question of how couplets work. Um, which do you think is the true one? So one is, true wit is nature to advantage dressed. What oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. And the other is reversal of those two lines. What oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. True wit is nature to advantage dressed. So. Um, how many people know which is the real one? Um, okay, so if you don't know, which, how many people think it's A? And how many people think it's B? Okay, so um, the majority thought B? Okay, so make the argument for A first, those who think it's A. It's just us two? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Personally, it just sounds better to me. Yeah, no, say more about that. Why does it sound better? Okay, what about you? Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I, I do like having, uh, I guess, what would you say, the answer or what is described mm -hmm. first, then have the description afterward. I, I think that just sounds a little more professional to me. <laughs> nice <laughs> word, professional. Okay, good. I don't know. Neat. All right, nice. Okay, and the, and the B people, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like reading what off was thought and there so well expressed, and then it makes you want to know what's next. So that's why I like. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said A, but I kind of want to, or I said B, but I kind of want to change my answer just because I was looking at the other ones, and I noticed that, uh, or some of the other poems, and I noticed that like most of the couplets, um, the second one has like a comparative word in it. Mm -hmm. So either but or nor or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe that might be the thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so nice. Okay, yeah. Um, I chose B because it, it sounded um, a bit more actually Shakespearean to me. Like, you know, at the end of sonnets, uh, the final couplet always has kind of like a twist ending. Mm -hmm. And B seems to more accurately reflect that kind of shifted tone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think poetry a lot of the time has a kind of uh, reverse of the clause so that you're changing, you're shifting the Nice, nicely put. Um, anyone else want to change their minds either way? Are you guys convinced by either of this to change your minds? <laughs> okay, do you want to say why you think, um, do you want to defend the truth, Tina? Yeah. No? Okay, do you want to defend the truth? Oh, well. Good. This is not a class where we're defending the truth. Okay. Well, there are a couple of things to notice about this. One is that um, it's often a feature of couplets that you can um, get close to the same sense out of them um, if you reverse them. Um, again, this is one of those bug feature things. Um, that is, um, people who don't like couplets say, see, that's a bug. And people who do like them say, no, it's not a bug. It's a feature. Um, 
And um, there, it may be the case that um, the fact that couplets are so well balanced, like other things that are well balanced, it may not matter which side of the balance, um, you may feel that it doesn't matter which side of the balance um, you address first. Um, couplets do tend to be well balanced. This isn't, an, isn't a particular example of um, perfect antithetical balancing, but it's saying true wit. It's saying two things about true wit, um, and one is an explanation um, or an introduction of the other. Um, and the point is that um, the couplet is itself a little bit an example, as it has to be a little bit of an, of an example of what it's describing. Um, that is, if you say that what that um, true wit is what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed. If, these, if this couplet really works, what you should be thinking to yourself is, yes, I've always thought so, but what a good way to put it. Um, that is, it should be a truth that you recognize, but a truth that somehow when it's put into this way um, becomes striking. Somehow the form is striking. It's, the, it's how well it's expressed um, rather than um, the content because you already know this. So that nature um, is what we all know. It's what we all see. It's what we know by virtue of being natural beings. Um, but nature is dressed to advantage. What, is, what would it mean to dress to advantage? What would that phrase mean? If you don't know, guess. You mean just like putting your best foot forward? Yeah, but in clothing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's like putting your best foot forward, but in clothing. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, Al Gore was very famously advised by, um, um, wasn't he only inclined to wear earth tones? Um, if only he'd worn them earlier, he would have um, won the election, um, is the claim, because earth tones look good on him. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's taking whatever your, there are lots of different facets and features of nature, and it's taking whatever your strong points are and dressing to emphasize the strong points. Um, the idea that nature is various but beautiful, um, if seen the right way, that's an idea that a lot of 18th century poets have, and it's also a lot of, an idea that a lot of 18th century gardeners have. Um, the idea of landscaping is, again, dressing nature to advantage, um, creating a garden which brings out the beauties of a landscape um, in the best possible way. Um, the 18th century couplet, Feng Shui, same thing, really. Um, so true wit is nature to advantage dress. That is um, what he's saying. And what that would mean is um, something that anyone can recognize. It's not that they need to be convinced of it. Um, it's they see it, but now they see it somehow more clearly and strikingly and pungently than they've seen it before. Um, true wit is reducing some important observation to a really snappy couplet. Um, that's essentially what it's saying. And this is Pope. Um, in a, in a poem of his will read called an essay on criticism. It's an essay written in couplets, an essay on criticism. Um, and this is what Pope says poetry should be doing. True wit is nature 
Well, okay, so the actual way Pope wrote it was, um, A, true wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. Um, one, it doesn't mean that the B version wouldn't work. Um, the B version might be um, a somewhat older, and someone suggested a Shakespearean um, way of doing that. I think that's probably right. Um, one thing that you can say about the way the 18th century writers thought about couplets was that they would naturally gravitate to the A version rather than the B version. Is your hand up? No. Um, no, it's fine. It's, it was a genuine question. Um, the A version for an 18th century poet would probably um, strike him or her like this, which is that the line is demonstrating that very act of dressing. That is true wit is nature to advantage dressed. That's a witty thing to say. That could be a proverb. Um, but then what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed would be the illustration and the dressing up, you could say, of the first line. So true wit is nature to advantage dressed. That's, not, that's good, but it's not completely striking. But then you become very capacious about that. And you say, it's not that poets know more. It's that they express themselves so well. What oft was thought but near so well expressed. Um, I was interested that two of you talked about the lines as though they were of different lengths, which they are in printing, obviously. Um, the what oft was thought but near so well expressed is longer, um, has more letters in it. Um, but they're both 10 syllables. They're both perfect iambic pentameter. Um, most heroic couplets are in perfect iambic pentameter. Um, do people know what iambic pentameter is? Um, so most of you are not nodding because, yeah, of course we know, duh, or this is not what I signed up for. Um, OK, one good thing about 18th century poetry is if you didn't sign up for meter, you don't need to learn a lot of meter in 18th century poetry. Basically, you need to know iambic pentameter. Uh, do you want a three-minute spiel on iambic pentameter? Let's do it. <laughs> and you were one of the people who nodded yes. All right, iambic pentameter, no, it's, it's, it's worth doing. Um, it's actually particularly worth doing for 18th century poetry. Iambic pentameter is the standard English poetic line. It has been the standard English poetic line accidentally in Chaucer and intentionally from the 16th century onwards. Accidentally, by accidentally, I mean that Chaucer um, wrote in iambic pentameter but he happened to write in iambic pentameter. He didn't think this is the standard English poetic line. He happened to write down in iambic pentameter. Um, Chaucer was so good at it that when people started reading Chaucer intensely in the 16th century, um, that's what they started internalizing. Um, iambic pentameter, um, there are two features of that phrase, iambic pentameter, which is that it's a line made up of iams, and what an iam is, is a two-syllable unit. The first syllable is unstressed, and the second syllable is stressed. So what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. Da da, da da, da da, da da, da da. That's and there are five of them, hence penta. So it's a meter with five feet, pentameter, pentameter, 
and those feet are always permissibly iams and usually they are iams. Um, you won't always have iams and iambic contaminator lines, although there's some feet that you always will, but we really don't need to go into that here. Um, but most feet will be iambic, will be da-da, and there will mainly be five of them. Um, and that's iambic pentameter for you. Why was iambic pentameter so successful? Um, why did Chaucer naturally fall into it and then Shakespeare and Marlowe and um, many other 16th and 17th century writers kind of naturally fall into it after reading a bunch of Chaucer? Um, there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that poetry, this is again just part of a very quick spiel, poetry is always about a kind of counterpoint between um, two different things that are going on, at least two different things that are going on simultaneously in a line. A line is saying something, but it's also following a beat. And the brain is somehow, we're we're doing both as we hear or read a line of poetry. We're following the beat and we're also following the meaning. And it's the interplay of beat and meaning which gives poetry the kind of pleasure that metrical poetry does. If you add rhyme, then there are three things that a poem is doing simultaneously. It's saying something, it's following a beat, and one beat is particularly marked as the beat that rhymes. Now there's a fourth thing that iambic meter gives you, as opposed to trochaic. You all know famous trochaic poems like By the Shores of Gichigumi, By the Shining Deep Sea Waters, Lived a Maiden, Hiawatha, and so on. Um, that's poetry that goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Metrically, it's much easier and more prominent to memorize, um, much easier to see, much easier to memorize. The meter is much more prominent in trochaic meter. Um, the reason for that is most two-syllable words in English are trochaic. Um, if you say something like um, um, auto or um, building, or I'm just um, tr I'm trying to think, think of things at random. What? Chalkboard. Chalkboard. Cockroach, I thought you said. Um, <laughs> Brandeis. Um, Harvard. Princeton. Just talking about our peers. Um, or any of you who have two-syllable names, you will have trochaic names most likely. Um, often, by the way, the difference between a male and a female version of a name is the female version will be um, iambic and the male trochaic, like Dennis and Denise. Um, so, but generally, two-syllable words in English about 90% of the time are trochaic. Um, what that means then is that since two-syllable words tend to be the long words in poetic lines. There are very few words more than two syllables. By very few, I mean fewer than 5%. Um, what will tend to happen in iambic lines is that words and feet will also be in counterpoint to each other. So again, if you look at um, true wit is nay, chur two, advantage dressed. Okay, advantage is three syllable. Um, um, what you will see is the two-syllable word there, nature, is crossing a foot boundary. That is, the, foot, the feet of that line is true wit, is nay. But the word nature, the chur in nature, is part of the third foot of the line. So just notice that there are these four different counterpoints 
that metrical poetry in English will almost naturally fall into if you write in iambic verse. Almost naturally, you will find these different counterpoints occurring. You don't have to think about it. It just happens because of the way English stresses tend to work, which is that we tend to stress the first syllable of words, but iams want you to stress the second syllable of feet. So words and feet tend to be in counterpoint in English. Um, and we fall, to give you an example, an example that I repeat over and over again, but it never gets old. Some of you may have heard this. Um, we fall into iambic meter very, very naturally. Um, there's a chapter of Moby Dick that's written in iambic pentameter, although it's printed as prose. And if you don't know that it's written in iambic pentameter, you won't know that it's written in iambic pentameter um, because it's natural to English. If you've seen Total Recall, um, there's a moment in Total Recall, remember I warned you about obscenity, there's a moment in Total Recall when Sharon Stone is really, really pissed off at Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, she has him at her mercy. She's a bad guy, she has him at her mercy and um, there's a scene where they're left alone and she decides to um, beat him before he's taken off to be executed or whatever. Um, and they're on Mars, she had to chase him to Mars to hunt him down and she's really unhappy about this. Um, and he's on his knees, handcuffed on his knees in front of her, and she just looks at him and, and spitting venom at him, and then she just starts wailing on him, and she clasps her hands together and starts hitting him hard, and what she says is hitting him on the beat of this line. She says, you know how much I hate this fucking planet, um, the planet being Mars. Um, and that's a perfect iambic pentameter line. Technically, it's a perfect iambic pentameter line with a feminine ending. Um, which would be appropriate, a kind of breath at the end of the line. Um, not you know how much I hate this fucking plant, but you know how much I hate this fucking planet. Um, and it's not that the scriptwriters of Total Recall, brilliant as they are, were thinking here would be a good place to put in an iambic pentameter line. It's that iambic pentameter lines really are the most natural lines that um, passionate speech will fall into, the plurality of passionate utterances of anger or love or whatever, if you say it naturally, not by no means a majority, but the plurality will be iambic pentameter. A tiny plurality, but still the plurality. It's what works best for expression. That's one reason. Another reason that iambic pentameter is really good for poetry is that you can't really split an iambic line right down the middle. Iambic lines, because they're, pen, I mean a pentameter line right down the middle. Because they're five feet, the most you can do is three versus two. You can have three feet and a pause and then two feet, or two feet and a pause and then three feet. But if you try to pause after five syllables, you'll pause in the middle of a foot. And what that means is the first half of the line will look different from the second. The first half will be da-da, da-da, da. Those are the first five syllables, and the second five syllables will be da-da, da-da, da. So iambic lines are, by their nature, asymmetrical. And to sum up everything as quickly as possible, the interplay of asymmetry with symmetry, the counterpoint, between asymmetry and symmetry in poetry is what makes it interesting. You get both asymmetry and symmetry, and that's what makes it interesting.
So what we're getting, even in these two lines, true wit is nature to advantage dressed, someone pointed out that the second line in the correct version, which is A, has that but right in the middle, but it's not right in the middle. It's after four syllables, after two feet, and there's a twist. So true wit is nature to advantage dress, no pause there at all. What oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. And the reason that second line sounds longer, it not only looks longer on the page, but sounds longer is because of the pause in it. And what the pause does is causes you to compare the first part of the second line with the second part of the second line, even as you're simultaneously comparing the first line to the second. So you're doing two kinds of comparisons at once. There's a mental juggling that's going on here. And in that mental juggling, what you're seeing is the second line is also a kind of illustration of the first line. What oft was thought, that's the kernel. And then there's a longer thing that enfolds it, but ne'er so well expressed. So that that enfolding of what oft was thought by the longer, but ne'er so well expressed, is itself an example of how nature is being dressed. True wit is nature to advantage dressed. The nature part is what oft was thought. The dressing is, but ne'er so well expressed. And that's typical of what Pope will do. There's a way in which this line is not typical, this couplet is not typical of Pope. But that um, balancing and balancing within balancing, there's a kind of inception-like level after level after level that you will get in heroic couplets is something that all the good poets that we're looking at are doing. So heroic couplets, we're going to be talking about them, and we'll start, we're starting today by looking a little bit at their genesis in English poetry. Um, someone brought up, as I, said, as I already mentioned, someone brought up Shakespeare's couplets at the end of his sonnets. Do people know about Shakespearean sonnets and how they work? So a Shakespearean sonnet, um, he's not actually the inventor of this, but he is far and away the most frequent user of it. Um, so they go by his name. Um, sonnets are, as you will know, 14 lines long. Um, this is not technically always true, but um, it's the standard basic definition of a sonnet. It's the person on the street's definition of a sonnet, a 14-line long poem that rhymes, which means that because it rhymes, you have at most seven pairs of rhymes, which means that like an iambic line, which has five feet, even though it has an even number of syllables, it has an odd number of feet. A sonnet has an even number of lines, but an odd number of rhymes, seven of them. 14 lines, seven rhymes. So like iambic lines, sonnets also can't be perfectly symmetrical. Again, that asymmetry that you look at in a line, in sonnets, that's a fact about the form of the entire poem, is that it can't be a symmetrical form. Um, heroic couplets are obviously symmetrical. You have line A and then line B. And that actually makes, that symmetry is what the 18th century poets have to work against. Sonnets, in their standard mode, which is called Petrarchan, will divide into a stanza which is eight lines long and a stanza which is six lines long. That's how the asymmetry will work in the standard sonnet. Shakespeare writes a different kind of sonnet which has three four-line quatrains. So four lines, four lines, four lines. And then there are two lines left. And that's a couplet at the end of the sonnet. And that couplet 
which rhymes AA, or at the end of a sonnet, you would say it rhymes EE. That couplet in Shakespeare will often be a summing up of what the first 12 lines have said. And so the couplet has this kind of summing up quality in Shakespeare. And it's almost as though, this is way too simple, but it's not untrue. It's almost as though the 18th century poets were really interested in Shakespeare's couplets at the end of the sonnets. Get rid of the first 12 lines, they're just the illustration, and get to the couplet, which tells you the point. If you're studying madly for a Shakespeare exam half an hour from now on his sonnets, what you would naturally do and probably rightly do is just read all the couplets at the end of the sonnets and get a sense of them from that. You'd actually do really badly on the exam if you did that, but still, um, desperate measures and all. Um, so there are lots of poems where the couplet has a kind of summing up feel. In Shakespeare's drama, couplets end scenes. That is, Shakespeare wrote in blank verse, um, usually, and most of his plays don't rhyme. They're an iambic pentameter, but an unrhymed iambic pentameter. But then at the end of the scene, one way you know when there are no curtains that a scene is at an end is someone sums up what's just happened in a couplet. The time is out of joint, a cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right. Anyone? Hamlet, Hamlet, good. Um, so couplets do have that summing up quality. Um, Spencer wrote a very complicated kind of stanza um, called the Spencerian stanza, which he did invent, but each Spencerian stanza ends with a couplet. Um, and people following Spencer got very interested in this use of stanza ending couplets. And in English, that's where the heroic couplet comes from. It has two sources. One is French poetry written in couplets, and the other is English poetry with couplets as a kind of summing up. So Beaumont, who is a friend of Shakespeare's, um, wrote in 1610, this is a kind of proto-heroic um, uh, couplet um, poem. Um, this is the beginning of a poem of Beaumont's um, about poetry. In every language now in Europe spoke by nations which the Roman Empire broke, the relish of the muse consists in rhyme. One verse must meet another like a chime. Of course. Um, that rhyme, rhyme chime, is one that Pope is going to pick up. Um, but yes, it illustrates itself. One verse must meet another like a chime. Our Saxon shortness hath peculiar grace in choice of words fit for the ending place. So English is especially good for this, he's saying. Which leaves impression on the mind as well as closing sounds of some delightful bell. So what he's saying is English, unlike Italian um, or French, is really great because we have so many, so many significant short words that really ring at the end of our, of our lines. So here's a little, this is not great poetry by any means, this, the, these couplets by Beaumont. But they're illustrative, like Pope, of the very thing that they're saying. And he's starting to think about why couplets would work and how they could work. Um, more interesting is one of the most important um, poems for scholars of the 18th century, um, Cooper's Hill by John Denham. So it's a poem, it's basically his only good poem. It's a poem that you probably wouldn't read more than four or five times in your life, but uh, you should read it. Um, four or five times in your life. This is just the opening of it. It's a couple of hundred lines long. Um, and it was a poem that was really, really important to the later poets that we're doing. 
Um, it's a description of um, a hill right outside of London that he loved. It's a description of nature. Um, and um, it's worth reading. It's Denham's one really good poem. And it's worth reading just to get a sense of what it is that he is kind of inventing in inventing 18th century, restoration in 18th century poetry um, here. This is um, from the 1660s. This is the beginning of Cooper's Hill. Sure, there are poets which did never dream upon Parnassus. What's Parnassus? Anyone? It is something Greek. Um, there used to be a magazine named Parnassus. Um, it's the place where the muses hung out. It was um, sacred to poetry. Um, and the idea in Greek and Roman mythology is you went to Parnassus and you drank of the um, stream there called Helicon, and that would inspire you with poetry. Um, so Parnassus is the source of all poetry. Sure, there, but he says, sure, there are poets, and it's, it's at the top of a mountain. It's like the Olympus for poets. Sure, there are poets which did never dream upon Parnassus. So he's saying, but it must be the case. He knows that there are poets who've never been there, um, even metaphorically. But he's, he's doing a kind of conceit here, which is if you're a poet and haven't been to Parnassus, that's really interesting because it tells you something, which he's about to explain. Sure, there are poets which did never dream upon Parnassus nor did taste the stream of Helicon. That's the, the, that's the um, spring on Parnassus. We therefore may suppose those made not poets, but the poets those. And um, that's really a great line if you think about it. what he's saying is there are poets, it's logic. There are poets, they exist, they really are poets, but they've never been to Parnassus. And so we can find out that it's not that going to Parnassus makes you a poet, but that it must be that people who were poets invented the myth of Parnassus. So those made not poets, that is, Helicon and Parnassus, but the poets, those. So look at that beautiful reversal there. Those made not poets, but the poets, those. You get that perfect balance in the line. Those made not poets, Parnassus and Helicon, but the poets, those. The poets it was the poets who invented the myth of Parnassus and Helicon. Notice what makes it possible is that you don't need to repeat the verb. Um, those made not poets, if you were to expand this, um, you would have to say those made not poets, but the poets made those. But you don't need to get that second made in. The first made is already controlling it. Those made not poets, but the poets those. Um, and the way that reversal happens, where you don't have to repeat it, again, I'll say this quickly, but again, it's a kind of example of the very thing it's describing, um, an example of how reversal um, can just make things clear without needing repetition. The poets are more efficient than they are. Um, and as courts make not kings, but kings the court, so you don't become a king because you have a court. You're part of a court because you're hanging around a king. Um, so that's not, so as courts make not kings, but kings the court, as poets make Parnassus and Helicon, kings make the court. So where the muses and their train resort, Parnassus stands. So um, it's wherever the muses go 
that you find Parnassus. You don't have to go to Parnassus to find the muses. You have to find the muses, that is become a poet, to find Parnassus. And this is, he says, why I'm going to talk about this hill outside of modern London, almost like talking about this hill on which Brandeis is resting. Um, you don't have to go to Parnassus. Here is Brandeis. Um, and where Parnassus is is where the muses go. So he then says, if I can be to thee, he's talking about the hill, Cooper's Hill. That's the name of the hill, just Cooper's Hill. There's no significance in that. If I can be to thee a poet, thou, Parnassus, art to me. So if I can be a poet to this hill, then it will be Parnassus. So he's writing a poem about this hill, and in doing so, he's proving himself to be a poet, and thereby making the hill Parnassus itself. By writing the poem, he's turning the subject of the poem into Parnassus. So it's really clever, all that um, very, very intricate interplay of the poem and what the poem's about and how the poem is about what it's about. Um, notice also how the pauses in the lines are shifting upon Parnassus, comma, of Helicon, comma. Um, these made not poets, comma, and as courts make not kings, comma. Um, Parnassus stands, semicolon, a poet, comma. Um, there's all this asymmetry in pauses within the lines that is something that the 18th century poets are really good at. Now, one thing about both Beaumont and Denham is they're not doing what's called end-stopped lines. What you see in Pope, true wit is nature to advantage dress, what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed, is that the couplet just ends with the second line. Um, that's called a closed couplet. Closed couplets are the opposite of enjambment. Enjambment is when you're taught in high school that when you read poetry, if there isn't punctuation at the end of the line, you just have to keep reading and not pause. Um, 18th century poetry, you really don't have to worry about that. 18th century poetry, there's almost always a pronounced pause at the end of every line. Um, that's not true in Denham. It's another constraint for people like Dryden and Pope and makes things yet a little harder for them because it tends to fall into a kind of sing-songiness if you're going to pause at the end of every line. But they do wonders with it. Yeah. Right, so are you saying that enjambment was actually a, another hindrance to poets? No, enjambment... Basically, so if you think of the 20th century as the age of free verse, um, the idea is the more you remove rules from poetry, um, the more poetry can say. That's what the, that's what the um, uh, promoters of free verse want to say. Um, and um, you know, people like Pound um, preeminently, for example, just um, saying um, you can Poetry doesn't have to rhyme. The lines don't have to be the same length. You don't have to, it doesn't have to have meter. Um, it doesn't have to um, pause at the end of a line. There are any constraint on poems. Um, what free verse tends to do is take away those constraints and say, you can say more. There's more expressive possibility. You get extreme examples of this in E. Cummings, who um, will break up words into individual letters. Um, he'll also break up words by putting parentheses within words um, and, put it, and, and shoving words parenthetically into other words. Um, the opposite of that 
um, is putting as many constraints as you can into a poem. Most great poetry is somewhere between extreme constraint and extreme freedom. Um, there are some very, very good, perfectly free verse poems, but not many. Um, usually there's some rules, and there's some very, very good, insanely constrained poems, but not many. An example of an insanely constrained poem is, is something called the snowball, where the, the way the poem works is um, the first word of the poem has to have one letter, the second word of the poem has to have two letters, the third word of the poem has to have three letters, etc. In English, snowballs therefore always begin either with the letter A, the letter O, or the letter I. That is, um, the letter A would be, um, it's actually hard because then you have to have a two-letter so two word starting with a consonant. Um, what would think of one? <laughs> um, two-letter word starting with a consonant? Yeah. A noun. Uh, or it could be an adjective. Uh, I, me, you, what gives. Yeah, okay, that's good, but that's I. I, me, you, what gives. All right, that's good. So there are not a whole lot, there are no, no courses at Brandeis or indeed anywhere on snowball poetry because there are just not enough good ones. Um, the, the constraints are really, really severe. Um, enjambment, when permitted, um, is the lifting of a constraint. So if lines of poetry can flow to the next line, there's one constraint gone. For most poets, that's freedom. Um, but for Dryden and Pope, they love the constraints because it forced them into invention. Um, so what you'll see is that the constraint of closed couplets, of making every couplet pause or almost every couplet pause at the end of the line or certainly at the end of a couplet, um, was something that they did great things with. This is all a poetry of um, very great constraint which allows enormous cleverness um, and enormous power in dealing with those constraints. People who don't like 18th century poetry just say, why should I read such stuff that's so constrained? And that's a legitimate thing to say. But the answer is, read it to see what they can do under those constraints. They're Houdinis. And what they can do in this straight-jacketed form is incredible um, and incredible to see. Um, Robert Frost, who refused, not to, who refused to write free verse, called it very famously, like playing tennis without a net. Um, that's what he thought free verse was. So the net is what makes tennis for people like Frost an interesting game. Um, and yeah. Well, I was just going to ask, so is Denham not a typical 18th century poet? No, he's, uh, he's very, um, he's inventing a new form. So no, he's not typical. He's kind of a proto 18th century poet. Um, he's the, per people read Denham and Dryden especially thought, I could do this. Um, and by memorizing, he basically knew this poem by heart and this was, um, this attuned him to this kind of poetry. So Denham, who is not a great poet, wrote one really good poem. And what he was doing, what he was thinking as he wrote that poem, was um, how he could um, engage in really pyrotechnical balancing of rhyme, of meaning, of, um, of phraseology. So those not made not poets, but the poets those. Um, that's technically called a chiasmus. It's those poets, poets, those are the, are the um, crucial words in that line. And it's, so it's like the Greek letter chi, which is a crossover word. So the line itself crosses itself. Those, poets, and then it's poets, those. Um, that balancing is something Denham um, 
decided to write a poem in which he balanced everything he possibly could. And it worked. He's not a great poet, but he wrote this one great poem. And it worked, and it made Dryden see what could be done in a poem. Then how did he go, I mean, if Denim was pre-Dryden and Dryden learned from Denim, then how did Dryden go from watching Denim use all this asymmetry and doing enjambment and then deciding to put more constraints well, he was thinking about couplets um, the way you find them in Shakespeare, which, because they're always at the end of a stanza, are always closed. In Shakespeare, a couplet is always a closed. Uh, in Shakespeare's sonnets, the couplets always end the poem, so they're, they're by their very nature, they have to close. Um, the same is true in Spencer, and um, probably somewhat more importantly in Fairfax. Um, that is, people writing complicated stanzas that end with couplets that have a summing up quality. So um, Dryden is, it's not that Dryden is saying, oh, Denham, I will do what he's done. It's that Dryden is reading Denham and saying, oh, he's doing a neat thing here too. And Dryden is putting it all together. Um, the part of this is a reaction to Milton, who thought enjambment was the most important thing that poetry could do. Um, Milton was um, extremely against closed lines um, and also against rhyme. And um, Milton was a Puritan. He was part of the um, um, older um, age of poetry that was supporting the revolution against Charles I, that was supporting Oliver Cromwell. And he was writing a kind of poetry that um, was very strongly anti-rhyme, which Milton thought was just a stupid decoration, the jangling um, um, the, the jangling of, of like endings, um, which is no true ornament of poetry, he called it. Um, Dryden, who liked Milton, um, they were friends, but Dryden was politically at the other end of, the opposite end of the religious and political extreme from Milton. One thing that he's doing is saying, no, we're sophisticated and witty rather than deep and sublime. Um, they're two, they represent two different um, uh, reactions to classical poetry, which is classical poetry doesn't rhyme. Rhyme in the West, Chinese poetry rhymes, classical Chinese poetry rhymes, but in the West, rhyme was really invented for serious poetry around the year 1000. Um, no serious poetry in the West had rhymed before. That's part of what Beaumont is saying when he says it's after the Roman Empire broke. Um, that um, rhymed poetry began. Classical poetry is all metrical. Part of the reason for that is it's really easy to rhyme classical poetry and not worth doing. Um, classical poetry is all metrical, which means that people thought in terms of lines very, very strongly. In English, in French, in Italian, some people thought, yes, the line is all that matters. And rhyming completely interferes with that. Others thought the way you show that a line is a line is you give it a little um, oomph at the end, and the best way to do that is with a rhyme. So there are two theories of how you could um, bring into modern English a classical idea of a poetic line. And Dryden's was you rhyme it, and Milton's was you don't rhyme it. Um, but they're both doing the same thing, which is tipping their hats to the classics. Um, all right, I wanted to, we're not going to get to too much obscenity, but what you should do is um, read through um, the rest of these um, sheets, uh, of these two sheets for um, Tuesday. And you should also, 
Oh, I forgot the Dryden. I will um, assume that if you're planning to take this class, you will um, you will be on Latte for it. You can always drop it, but get onto Latte for it. Um, let's say by tomorrow night, and um, I'll tell you what Dryden to read as a, um, a run up from this. But definitely read through the rest of this um, and be aware that you may find yourself reading it out loud to friends whom you want to entertain. <laughs> All right, I'll see you guys Tuesday. Uh-huh.